Welcome to Novelize This, a discussion of books that are based on movies, video games, and more. I'm Mark. And I'm Chris. And uh, it's been a very short two weeks since our last episode. Lies. But we are making good on our promise. Today we are discussing the Beverly Hillbillies. The saga of Wildcat Creek, as I have my book here. My book is falling to pieces. Yeah, it turns out that I don't think there are any of these that still are in good shape. Since they did, you know, published in 1963, that puts them at Mm -hmm. just under 60 years old as of our recording. Yeah, holy cats. It's pretty nuts. Yeah, and... Out of print, never reprinted to my knowledge. Which is a real shame. You know, I'm sure that those Beverly Hillbillies fans were just really aching for for more literary goodness. Mm-hmm. A lot of cliffhangers at the end of this. Oh my God, like so many cliffhangers. Chico the monkey, will he or won't he ever meet Samson the bear again? <laughs> real quick, I'm counting from my notes how many times I wrote down cliffhanger um and some of the cliffhangers are actually i don't know what's going to happen and some of them are are you kidding me yeah they really vary wildly from chapter to chapter well it is a wild cat book oh there it is i'm bringing the heat (laughs) so to start us off uh, i thought i'd talk a little bit about the show just in general now my research is pretty much limited to I read a Wikipedia article. Uh, The Beverly Hillbillies is an American television sitcom that was broadcast on CBS from 1962 to 1971. Okay, so they Mm -hmm. they were on the air for nine years. The Clampets, a poor backwoods family from the hills of the Ozarks, moved to posh Beverly Hills, California after striking oil on their land. The Beverly Hillbillies ranked among the top 20 most watched programs on television for eight of its nine seasons. The Rural Purge. Yes, yep. Yeah. The show was not canceled due to poor viewership. It was canceled by request of advertisers. The idea that advertisers would balk about the quality or the topic of the show in a 21st century mindset is just mind-blowing to me. Advertisers wanted to put their money behind more sophisticated shows, what they thought of as sophisticated shows for younger people and suburbanites. It was so extremely popular, but it was too rural for the Mm -hmm. advertisers but it was popular people watched it yeah i've i guess i've always thought that the rule was if it gets a lot of attention then we're gonna throw our money at it apparently uh late 60s early 70s a bunch of big networks were just canceling anything that was set in a rural setting from what i read that led to the rise of like Mary Tyler Moore's popularity as a solo act, so to speak, and Bob Newhart. And it's not like everything that came out of it was bad. I like a lot of that stuff too, but it's a shame. Like, I watched a few episodes in prep for today's oh, really? show that we're recording. Yeah, and the show is pretty freaking funny, actually. I mean, granted, with certain stereotypes and certain arguably sexist oh, elements. Well, well, yeah, we'll get to that because that's all in the book, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was damn funny. And I gotta say, the granny character was really funny, like a lot more interesting in the show than in this book. Another character that doesn't really get a lot of play in the book is um, Jane Hathaway, Drysdale's assistant. Oh, yeah, she's mentioned like two or three times and and that's it. Yeah, she, I gotta look up, what is the name of that? Who played Jane Hathaway on the Beverly Hillbillies? (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Oh, gosh. Nancy Culp. Nancy Culp played Jane Hathaway, and she was hilarious. 
her comic timing, her delivery is so great. She's actually, from the episodes I watched, she's my favorite oh. character on the show. I understand that Nancy Culp, the actor who played her, was gay. She never formally came out because she, um, you know, at the time it was don't ask, don't tell. (laughs) I mean, yeah, effectively. Yeah. And then um, Lily Tomlin played that character in the 93 movie. Not only does she have like a similar physicality, but her delivery is in tune with the original actors and um, and she is outspokenly gay. And I think that, you know, maybe it wasn't done consciously on the part of the filmmakers, but I think that's some justice for. for sure. Cole. I mean, it, yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't known that, but it does bring up my only real connection with the Beverly Hillbillies, which is. I am old enough that I distinctly remember seeing the 1993 film, and there are two reasons why I remember it. Number one, Jim Varney was in it, Ernest himself, and I was very excited for that as a huge Ernest fan as a kid. I know I saw this movie when I was a kid, and I didn't realize that was Ernest, I guess. Because he's not Ernest in it. He's actually playing another character. It's almost, you know, it's, it's frankly incredible. It's like Santa Claus taking his, his beard off. And uh, I also distinctly remember Diedrich Bader playing Jethro. Oh. Now, and I used to think that was because I really liked the Drew Carey show growing up. Yeah. And Diedrich Bader is in that. And then I checked, mm-hmm. Diedrich Bader wasn't on the Drew Carey show until 1995, which oh. was two years after the movie came out, which means I have no idea when I actually saw the Beverly Hillbillies movie. Yeah, same. Maybe it was a rental. It absolutely was for our family. I, don't, I, I think watching that movie was my only um, like exposure to the Beverly Hillbillies growing up. Yeah, same. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, but we're not here to talk about movies from the 90s or television shows from the 60s we're here to talk about a book from 1963 written by one doris schroeder yeah so doris schroeder was a longtime film and tv writer from 1913 to 1951 Hmm. she has tons of credits to her name lone ranger stuck out to me she's got a handful of episodes of those she was born in new york in 1893 and her first job out of school was a stenographer for um director roland s sturgeon sturgeon was her in for the film business and she was 20 years old when she wrote her first movie Hmm. which was called the heart of a jewess Schroeder was Jewish. She wrote this movie sort of loosely based on some of her personal experiences, but no known copies exist today. Oh, it's one of those. And in 55, that's when she began writing these tie-in novels. So she kept writing those until 1969. So yeah, she she wrote to a nice... ripe age (laughs) that's not something people say also very unwilling to do the math i see yeah well (laughs) so chapter one jed has problems don't we all jed we live in covid times jed (laughs) you're so unique jed yeah you don't even know jed uh, but I'll say this. One of the cool things about this is that having no knowledge about the Beverly Hillbillies, they set the stage very well. You come mm-hmm. in, yeah. they they create this initial kind of strife. Jed is unhappy living in Beverly Hills. He misses the Ozarks. 
Ellie May, his daughter, is unhappy. She misses the Ozarks. Granny misses the Ozarks. The only people who seem to still want to be around are Aunt Pearl, who I found out does not appear in any other season except the first one of the Beverly Hillbillies. She vanishes. Yeah, good. Because apparently too many too many female characters. Well, also, you know, playing her off of Granny. Yeah. Pearl is not funny compared to Granny. No. And Granny in the show, <laughs> she's feisty and, and strong. And like, she's what people in the business call super dope. Business? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and then, of course, then they introduce Pearl's son, Jethro, and then they establish the Drysdales, and I, again, had to put myself into, this is 1963. So Mr. Drysdale is super upset that if Jed moves back to Arkansas, he will take all of his money with him to a different bank. And I really had to ruminate on that and go, why? Because banks used to be regional. When they say that he has his money at the bank, they mean literal money. I did not put that together. Right? (laughs) Like, I don't even think about money that way with a 21st century mindset. Mm -hmm. The overall vibe of the first chapter is very much on the side of the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. They are not fools. We are there as the audience to mock. They are the sympathetic characters And I feel like it's really used to establish the unreasonable expectations of other people. I like that. And I was very glad for that. Mm. It feels unkind and unfair to just poke fun at them that way because they're Southern, because they're... They're other. They're different. Yeah. That's a great point that this first chapter really sets them up as being intelligent. Maybe even in a way that the show doesn't. I've just seen the beginning of the show, so who knows where it goes. But And I'm not going to keep comparing the book to the show throughout the, this whole conversation. But in the show, it's like they don't know what an icebox is try to burn wood in a modern stove you're right they catch a flamingo try to kill it for dinner or whatever and but those aren't native to california jane hathaway buys them for them to um spruce up their place i see i see (laughs) that's that that is very weird and very 1960s to me yeah so the first chapter is really just setting up what feels like will be the driving plot of the story right People are unhappy. They, they moved away from their home. They are unhappy. They are considering moving back. There are pros and cons. It's not a clean cut, easy answer solution. And then the chapter ends. <laughs> yeah. And dang, it's like a commercial break. <laughs> like it feels like, yeah. go, go make a sandwich, go grab something to drink. And they are still relatively new to Beverly Hills at this point. Yeah. The Drysdales mention the curiosity of the new millionaire when they come up with this idea of, uh, oh, we'll throw a party. We'll invite other young people over and that will convince Ellie Mae to stay and Jethro because they'll meet other people their age. This feels like somehow this is going to involve Wildcat Creek, right? That we've established what the A storyline would be if this was a sitcom. The A storyline would be they're unhappy. How are they going to decide to stay? Which I think could carry the entire book. I expected it to carry the entire book. It did. It does not very quickly. No. But I like that Ellie and Jethro fight each other like real fighting. Not like play fighting, but it's described like Furiosa fighting Mad Max <laughs> in Fury Road. <laughs> One of my assumptions 
not having seen the show was that Jethro and Ellie were like romantically involved, but I guess they're cousins. Oh, they're cousins, dude. They're not that hillbilly. (laughs) All right. So chapter two kind of wraps up with our first of many cliffhangers to come. Ellie does not know how to drive, apparently, but she also knows how to shift from neutral into first gear without pushing in the clutch. Wow. Okay, you're gonna you're gonna do some serious damage to that. And uh, she promptly crashes the car through a tent uh, at the Drysdales and drives into a pool. And they shout that someone is still in the pool. And that's how the chapter ends. Mm-hmm. Who could it be? If you guessed a completely new character <laughs> that is going to be essentially the driving force of the entire plot. What is wrong with you and why would you guess that? <laughs> That's that is, what an insane premise. Yeah. But that does take us into chapter three, Home Folks, where we actually get the real plot. Yeah. All of this, the the Clampets are unhappy. No, no, no. Forget that. Because what we care about is Bill Tucker. Who is this Bill Tucker and how many episodes of the show is he on? Oh, zero. He was on none. <laughs> um... Bill Tucker is a good old boy, also from Arkansas. Yeah. What are the chances? I know. This is one of a few big coincidences in the book. Coincidences that have to exist for the book to work. I will give a writer one coincidence at the beginning of a book, but they can't keep happening, folks. And they do. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. Bill Tucker has traveled to Beverly Hills on his way to Wildcat Creek, which is quote unquote somewhere in the mountains of California. Okay, that's fine. He's going to meet his great uncle uh, Hezediah. That's going to be the plot. Bill Tucker becomes essentially the object of obsession for the entire Clampett family. And they're going to do multiple things to try and help him along. From a plot point of view, that sucks. It, it <laughs> so much reminded me of the Poochie skit from The Simpsons, that when Poochie's not on screen, all the other characters should be asking, where's Poochie? Yeah. The book gives some fairly strong motivation to the Clampets, but I don't really understand Bill. So the idea is that great uncle Hezzy was essentially like a prospector. Like he was the kind of person who would go out trying to seek his fortune and he would come back to home very intermittently. And so the last time he saw Bill is when Bill was a little kid. That's the whole picture that Bill has of him and his great uncle. Hezzy finally made something of himself at Wildcat Creek. He was, it was like a a mine or some, some sort, but he owns the town. He's fabulously wealthy compared to what he was, but he has no heir. So he specifically wrote to Bill saying, come to Wildcat Creek. You are my, I guess, only living male relative. You will inherit all of this. But here's the problem, right? None of that involves the Clampets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except the added coincidence that Granny knows Hezzy. She knew him when they were both young. And so she suddenly has a vested interest in going to see him, which again would make for an interesting B plot that is not addressed. <laughs> yeah. It is it is setting up for nothing. Mm-hmm. I thought Granny and Hezzy were gonna have some sort of an interaction. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Jed mentions Ellie's mother early on. He remarks that Ellie Mae is prettier than her mother. Yeah. And Ellie Mae says, oh, everybody says how pretty she was. 
Oh, wow. So Ellie Mae didn't really know her mom? Yeah. Okay, again, that makes for a family dynamic, right? Like, that's more than I was expecting. Yeah. Jed raised her, quote-unquote, as a boy, and um, mm-hmm. and then he has to try to backtrack that because of society, or I don't know. It's kind of silly, but, uh, but at least there's this motivation going on. And so when we learn that Granny and Hezzy knew each other, I was thinking, okay, we're talking about love, losing love. There was this opportunity, like, clearly Ellie and Bill start developing feelings for each other. Like, almost immediately. (laughs) Yeah. And so I thought, okay, so we're going to have Bill and Hezzy discover their passions and and Granny and Ellie finding theirs and maybe that fulfilling Jed and so far as, like, trying to give his daughter what he thinks a woman needs, you know. You know, of course... I have mixed feelings about that, but... The amazing coincidences continue to add up with Bill Tucker. None of that is going to play out as the story really unfolds. But that's fine, because Ellie May needs someone who will teach her how to drive. And since Bill just got fired, because he too has a fiery temper, clearly he's the man for the job. There's this whole thing in there about how he's a redhead and he's got a fiery temper. And that doesn't come up again, ever. Nope. Yeah, he's actually a super nice guy. Yeah, I I get that they're trying to set him up as a parallel to Ellie, right? Because they established that Ellie fights with Jethro. Ellie is this, I'm going to stand up, you know, for what I think is right or wrong. Hey, Bill's like that too, but not really. Again, it's it's weirdly breadcrumbing that dead ends. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. go anywhere. What do you make of Ellie not being able to drive? I don't think it's a commentary on quote-unquote women can't drive. I think that it was just way less common for women to drive in the 60s. Yeah. Ellie driving was probably very progressive back then. Drysdale even makes like a point of why would Ellie need to drive? You could just hire a driver. Jed is like, no, she needs to know how to drive. What are you, crazy? Yeah. I expected the whole learning to drive to be more than two days. Well, I can't help if my daughter's smart. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know. She's a strange character because on the one hand, she defies a lot of social norms. On the other hand, there's a drive, at least the other characters, her her father for sure, have this drive to try to make her more womanly. Sometimes she's like, well, you're not going to make me a sissy. (laughs) (laughs) And then at other times she's like dressing up in bows and saying no one's gonna take my bows away from me and maybe it's because i've been watching a lot of rupaul's drag race lately but ain't nobody gonna take bows away (laughs) like i actually (laughs) really appreciate that kind of gender spectrum she is this kind of rough and tumble stand up for what's right fight with her cousin but she really likes ribbons i like that I, I, I can't tell if it was something that was intentionally progressive or if it was just being played for comedy and was unintentionally progressive. Yeah. Either way, I actually like Ellie Mae a lot. Me too. Um, what is that tea they make? Catnip tea? Is that an actual thing? Yeah, catnip tea. Yeah, I've had catnip tea. Oh. It doesn't taste particularly good, but I'm not a tea drinker in general. Yeah. So Bill goes to live at essentially a flop house. You meet his friend Everett, who of course is immediately very skeezy. Then, or what is it? Yeah, like, because there's Everett and Pete. And I got so confused. Yeah. Because neither of them are described in any detail. And it really hurt me to try and keep track of who was who. But essentially, 
Bill tells, I think, Everett about Uncle Hezzy and everything. And so Everett teams up with Pete to beat Bill to Wildcat Creek with the letters and with the picture to essentially steal his inheritance. Mm -hmm. This is essentially the entire plot. Yeah, the big coincidence of, of Bill and his uncle not really knowing each other, essentially never having met. There's a little bit of interesting set dressing because, you know, Bill is a temporary resident in L.A., right? He's he's literally just passing through. He was just working to make money to be able to go to the next step to Wildcat Creek. I always thought it was cool in those like Jerry Lewis movies and someone's just like, can I sweep up in here and you'll give me a bunch of money? <laughs> like, I remember yeah. as a kid asking neighbors like, can I house sit your cat? Is that a thing? I don't know. Jerry Lewis did it. <laughs> yeah, it. I don't. I don't know. This is this is where I lost a little bit of traction with the book. Yeah, I think you're totally right too about Everett and Pete. Pete. I can't even keep their names straight. So Everett and Pete. In my mind, as I read, both of those characters were Tim Curry. <laughs> I actually like that a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not a picture book, but there are drawings in this yeah. book because the, the it's not super descriptive writing. A picture is actually kind of nice. It does lack certain useful details that I kind of have to just fill in with my imagination or rely on these pictures for. But also there's moments where the prose are as entertaining as the dialogue yeah. or, the, or whatever circumstances taking place. Um, Schroeder is actually pretty entertaining, which makes sense because not only did she write a lot of movies and so forth, apparently she was hired to punch up the dialogue of a lot of movies. Yeah, She's, I believe that. Yeah, she just, um, for a lot of movies, her only credit is dialogue. Once we get the schemers chapter, you know, Everything that's going to happen, yeah. skimming over the next few chapters is doing a, a real service to the audience. Sure. So many chapters feel like filler. We have yeah. to get this over 200 pages. Yeah. And then in chapter seven, now Pete and Everett have stolen the letters, the picture, and a suitcase. They have left town. You know, they skipped town. No forwarding address. None of that. And then we go right back to... Bill is teaching Ellie how to drive and they stop at a quote unquote zoo. It's a roadside zoo. Here is a person who has a bunch of exotic animals in cages. Do you want to stick your fingers in there? $5, please. But yeah, now we get essentially Chekhov's monkey and Chekhov's bear where <laughs> Ellie Mae buys a monkey and a bear. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's just no reader who's going to think, this won't come up again later. Like, this is just an amusing detail. Yeah. Not that it really pays off much, in my opinion, but... It, it doesn't. So Bill discovers that Everett took his suitcase. But weirdly, Bill is also well-intentioned, I guess, that he's like, oh, well, he'll pay me back when he can. He must have needed it more than me. My fiery temper is nowhere to be seen. Yeah. It must have been in that suitcase. <laughs> this chapter ends with granny screaming at this point i wrote down i bet you a hundred dollars it's the monkey <laughs> and then yeah it was the monkey granny saw the monkey and got scared ho 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 she thought it was satan there's not a lot in here about religion but 
<laughs> she sure is afraid of Satan. Yeah. The old boy is what he's called. <laughs> that old boy. Old Jack Scratch. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, and then there is this tension between Bill and Ellie Mae. It's Bill essentially saying goodbye, right? This is the most tame, will they, won't they ever. It, I thought this is going to be like a, well, when you're done with Wildcat Creek, you should come back or something. Nope. Ellie Mae was just sticking around because they were going to give Bill a bunch of food. This guy is never coming back again. Yeah, and so then we find out the other two travelers, Everett and Pete, are making their way to Wildcat Creek. I don't know why we needed this scene. We already established what they were going to do. But by golly, they're still planning on doing it. You do get this moment where they're practicing being hillbillies. (laughs) Get your pronouncing right, you hear? You're a hillbilly from Cougar Holler. (laughs) I gotta say... After reading this book, it was kind of hard for me to stop talking that way. I have a job where I'm on the phone for eight hours. <laughs> yeah, the phonetic spelling is actually really well done. Yeah, this is me at work today. Yes, ma'am. I ain't a problem, not at all. <laughs> I'm just a folksy hillbilly. Now we want you to show up 15 minutes early here, not 20. I got my shotgun out. I don't expect you at 20 minutes early. I I might not recognize you. You don't know what'll happen. There's a lot of gunplay in this book too, I should add. Oh, the finale has a shocking (laughs) number of guns in it. Yeah. (laughs) Now, here is the most criticism I can lay at the feet of this author, though. She made a monkey throwing tomatoes... The least funny thing I have ever read. Inside, Chico, planted squarely in the middle of the refreshment table, was bombarding one and all with stuffed tomatoes, sandwiches, and anything else he could hold in his hand long enough to throw. He was jumping up and down, squealing delightedly all the time. And some of the young fellows from the swimming pool were laughingly throwing his own missiles back at him and making an unholy mess in general. It's like um. a police report. A monkey stood on the table <laughs> the, like, from, from 8.45 to 8.52. Like... <laughs> It's just, what in the world? And then finally, by page 168 of a 212-page book, after various shenanigans and social commentary, we are finally going to Wildcat Creek because we want to visit Bill Tucker. Mm -hmm. Maybe the book should have started here. (laughs) Good God. Why didn't you drive him? Right, yeah. You were with him. and And you said your goodbyes. Oh, I forgot. They're also going to go take Samson the bear back to the mountains. We also got an honest to goodness. We knocked down a road sign and got separated because of it. Ellie Mae and Granny and Pearl all go to Wildcat Creek, while Jed and Jethro following behind go the wrong way to a mine? Which doesn't amount to much because they get separated again later. Right. The women go and they explore what happened. They meet Bill. Right. And I say meet Bill because they meet the imposter. Fake Bill. Yeah. Yeah. And so they have that interaction and why they have to have it without the men present is beyond me because the men do show up later. Yeah. And then the men do go forward with a plan of their own and and end up separating from the women and the women have to go forward on their own to essentially save the day. Why are there two zoos? Why are there two Tim Curry's? 
Why are there two roads up this mountain? Why are there... It's like everything comes in twos. It's confusing and it's frustrating when it's not confusing. Mm -hmm. So they go to Wildcat Creek. They do not recognize the man who is claiming to be Bill Tucker. Apparently there is a doctor there as well. Uncle Hezzy is quote unquote on his deathbed. And they are effectively liquidating all of his assets. And it raises a legitimate question. Where is the real Bill? We have used Bill as a point of view character. And then he stops being a point of view character. Right? It becomes this mystery about where is he and where did he go? And once we find out, it's all summarized briskly. Because he is essentially the main character of this book, whether Schroeder meant that to be or not, we could just show what happened to Bill as it was happening. And and yeah. then instead of cutting back to the Clampets uncovering this mystery, if we were stuck in Bill's head, I think there'd be a lot more tension. Right. I was expecting a scene where Bill goes up to the house and says, Uncle Hezzy, I'm your great nephew, Bill. No, you're not. My nephew's right here. Mm -hmm. And that Bill has to face the horror of they have snuck in. They've taken over, right? I thought what was going to happen is that Bill is going to have to use the fact that the Clampets will vouch for him, that he is the true good old boy, and these other two are fakers and catch them out in their lie. I didn't think that in chapter 13 we were just going to establish, yeah, Bill got captured and he's tied up. Yeah. (laughs) It's said just like that the subplot with granny knowing hezzy only really is important if it becomes useful in proving the true identity of bill yep but it doesn't play out that's that why way. i thought it mattered yeah so it doesn't matter no nope. i just there's a lot of stuff in this book that doesn't matter yeah and back to your point about why did we split them up we get the ladies going to the house They tell them to buzz off. Like, at this point, I thought, great, Granny has her shotgun. We're going to get tough old lady busted in. No, they they just kind of don't. Which brings us to chapter 14, Clampets to the Rescue, which, again, should have been the name of the book. (laughs) This is where we actually get to meet Hezzy. We get a moment between him and Granny where it's mostly just them going, I remember you. And then (laughs) Ellie Mae hears Bill in the attic. Bill hears them and is trying to signal to them. Ellie Mae says, they must have an animal in the attic. I have to do something. And then they don't. (laughs) (laughs) They've they've set up all the pieces in place. And then they don't do anything with it. And, And it's another sort of fake out. Because they meet back up with Jed and Jethro and their plan becomes, at the insistence of the men, of course, that the men should go and do the, the rescuing. It's also the men who kind of help illuminate the fact that Bill was... They just kind of invoke, they must have Bill. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so then the boys go up there and they get caught. Pretty much immediately. (laughs) Yeah, and so again, I have to ask, if that's going to happen anyway, why not just have the women go in there and solve the problem? I have a theory. Okay. This book was written in 1963. They did not want to menace the female characters in any way. Because if you think about it, they are not menaced, menaced with guns like the male characters are. Mm -hmm. Jed and Jethro are both held at gunpoint. 
the women, even though Granny has a shotgun and she is straight up going to kill some motherfucker today. <laughs> like that is, that is Granny's mood at this point. She says, just like in the feuding days. <laughs> then instead, Ellie Mae sneaks in and frees Bill. So Bill can be menaced. And then Chico shows up to bite someone. And then Jed headbutts a dude from a chair. (laughs) And you know what? I respect it. I wish it had been set up better. But no. But then the last chapter is 11 pages. Hmm. So all of this just gets wrapped up. The bad guys are defeated. Granny doesn't shoot anybody, which I am weirdly disappointed about. And then the book ends. Yeah. It just ends. And it ends with this weird note of the possibility of romance for both Granny and Ellie. Uh, It's just like, if this is fan fiction anyway, just let them all hook up, yo. Yeah. Like, literally the book ends with Granny was half tempted to stay. She said that she'd come back with Jed and Ellie in the spring. They both smiled understandingly. Yeah. Why even have that for a character that doesn't ever recur? Yeah. And it's like, you know, none of this is referenced in the show, obviously. If there was the expectation that in between season one and season two, you had to read a book, (laughs) that would be amazing. Yeah. Like X-Files fight the future. Yeah. Yeah, so if it's not part of canon anyway, just have Ellie and Bill go off together. And I gotta say, like, Granny's hatred of Pearl being the reason that she doesn't stick around with with Hezzy, that's weird. Yeah, it feels bad. It is an unsatisfying ending because there is no overall plot. Nobody changes, okay? Mm-hmm. Part of that is because this is based off of a sitcom. Mm-hmm. Everything has to have a reset so that way the next episode can start at square one. Yeah. Even this book feels like it was beholden to that concept. It's such a missed opportunity because, like, if nothing else, I wanted Jed to acknowledge out loud to Ellie you're fine the way you are. Sure, right? You're not the daughter that everyone expects you to be, um, but you're the daughter that I raised. And look at what you've done today. You you saved a man's life, maybe two men, maybe all of us. And how could I want you to be any different? You know, I just felt like, why put that in the beginning if you're not going to pay it off? And right. it's just because of what you're saying, because there can't be a payoff in a sitcom, can there? It's sad because like one of the problems of a situational comedy is that you can only iterate on that situation so many times, right? Before you start to have to expand on it. By season eight, everyone is a caricature of who they were in season one. Mm -hmm. It is disappointing to have a story that is driven by a completely what who should be by all intents and purposes a tertiary character at best be the driving force of the plot be the person who has like a character journey but where they don't overcome anything on their own (laughs) yeah and you know the thing is about bill and hezzy i guess although we don't really know hezzy yeah we get nothing from him yeah Uh, you know these are two characters you don't need to reset because they don't exist in canon yeah so why not give them some growth Give them some point B to their point A. 
clearly we're we're moving into the point of the episode where we start workshopping how we would write this book right <laughs> because essentially why not have the story this if okay if we're gonna stick with bill is the primary character that the story is happening to why not have the conflict be between bill and hezzy hmm. that bill is not quote unquote the man that hezzy wants to be his heir and then Wildcat Creek is essentially about Bill proving that either he is this true blue person or maybe he doesn't need to be this true blue person. And Hezzy needs to be reminded of what it was like to grow up in the Ozarks. And, you know, because he he meets Granny again and he they, they reminisce about these old yeah. times that they had together, you know, have something where there's actual growth and where yeah. history together actually matters. Why not show that Bill's fiery temper is what gets him caught in the end, and he's got to overcome that and let somebody else do the fighting for him, you know, or or something. Yeah, or or something. Instead, he gets taken out like a chump, and then he needs to have a monkey act as you know a Deus Ex chomp machine <laughs> to so that way he can knock one of the antagonists unconscious. Because the women couldn't? Because, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know what else to say about this goddamn book. (laughs) I feel like I like it less after talking about it. The first half of the book I actually kind of liked. It sets the scene. It introduces the characters. You get an idea of who they are. You get wants. You know, you get I want versus I need. You get all this really classic kind of literature language. And then it just kind of falls to pieces very very rapidly and then the back Mm -hmm. half i thought that all of the character stuff building up to bill leaving was going to matter and it doesn't nobody learns anything and nobody changes it's not satisfying as a reader the story just doesn't come together it's two books smashed together. They really don't belong together at all. This feels like fan fiction. Mm-hmm. This feels like somebody had an idea for a story, added the Beverly Hillbillies to it, and where's Bill Tucker? <laughs> yeah, so Bill Tucker is Scooby-Doo, and the Clampets are the Harlem Globetrotters. Yes. I'm, I didn't think I was going to be with you when you started this analogy, but <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Reset. Um, our next episode is Deer Hunter. So wildly different from everything else we've read on this podcast so far. You can visit us at novelizethis.com and uh, send us an email at novelizethispodcast at gmail.com. I want to give a shout out to our favorite band, 8-Bit Betty, for our theme song. Was that a way message for me? And uh, anything else I'm missing, Chris? Uh, you can follow me on no social media because Mm -hmm. I'm on no social media. No social media accounts exist in connection with this podcast. Um, that's it. Otherwise, I think that'll do it. That's, that's it. That's it for me. Um, yeah. So we'll, we will see you, hear you, listen to you, hear this to us next time. We're we're listening. (laughs) We did it again, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. High five. Beep. Emilio, can you say a bubbling crude? A bubble toot, a bubble, that's tea. That's pretty good.